Just stop it. The run of the mill, cheesy, humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women who go through hell to achieve their goals. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. Sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. This is Disruption Interruption. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. This is KJ, and we are here today to talk with someone that has steered off the lame, tired path of his industry status quo. Today's guest has been disrupting for over 20 years. He is a badass revenue guru. Actually, he's a disruptive fractional CRO for ERP software and IT companies. He developed an algorithm called Sales Messaging Impact to evaluate a company's offerings and how they're positioned in the market. This is not your lame status quo elevator pitch. This is actually something that speeds up revenue cycles, that gives complex insight and certainty into the process of qualifying, driving, and closing sales. Coming to us live from New York, please welcome... Fractional CRO, Jeff Hoffman of jeffhoffmancro.com. Thank you very much. Well, hello, KJ. How are you? I'm great today. I'm, you know what? I'm really excited to talk to you um, because you are a badass revenue guru. And that is on the topic of mind in the beginning of year for everyone, right? They're uh, ready to come out the gate, new years, right? Generating Mm. revenues. But you're disrupting it in a very interesting way. And before we get into the status quo, tell me, what is the most important, the main ingredient for disruption? The main ingredient is that a company has a must-have solution that buyers at the companies they're trying to sell to uh, has to have. And I think one of the challenges in in the market especially in the tech industry is that you, you're, you're looking at a lot of small to mid-sized uh, companies either trying to get funding or they've got a little bit of funding uh, so they can operate, but most of them don't really have got to have products. They've got nice to have products and, and the, the trick then becomes how do you turn those nice to have products into got to have products? You've got to create a perception to do so, or you have to have the functionality to have a guy to have. Right. Right. So the main ingredient, so we don't, there's really not like a percentage of got to have products is much smaller than products out there. Right. So you're telling me that it is the got to have here. The main ingredient to disruption is creating the perception of a got to have product. Right. So it's step one is figuring out who the stakeholders are that care about what it is you've got that you're selling, whether it's a, an, a product offering or a service offering. You know, what is it you're bringing into the market? Who truly cares about that when you look at the, the companies you're trying to sell to? Why do they care about it? And why would they want to buy from you now? And, uh, you know, I think a lot of companies make a mistake of, uh, assuming that 
the salespeople they hire are going to have connections at companies with their own Rolodex uh, and that they'll be able to just go ahead and make deals happen. But in reality, nobody buys like that. You know, it's, it's not a relationship industry. You've got to have something that's going to impact their business. This is really, it is a complex sales impact. I mean, it is a complex insight, right? So tell me this, because I'm hearing everything you say, and I believe there are good intentions by these companies. You know, they, they, they say that they have this perception, but Mm -hmm. they really do focus on the shiny object. And I think the majority, well, I've read, I've studied, I work with a lot of IT companies and um, the majority of them really focus on shiny objects and the speeds and feeds. And this is a chief revenue officer that says, wait a minute, guys, perception is the disruption, right? So tell me, let's like dig into the status quo. Tell me more of what the status quo is really like, because you gave a little snippet of it. They come, they have their Rolodex, right? Or they have their book of business and they think they can just, you know, call that book of business and follow a particular mathematical formula. So many calls, so many leads, this and that, right? Mm -hmm. Tell me what the status quo is and how it's really hurting these tech companies. Yeah. I think the status quo is you have, uh, companies, uh, again, most tech companies fall into this small to mid-sized category. So uh, inevitably you're, you're looking at companies that are operating with most likely uh, less than $25 million in funding. Uh, if they've generated revenue, which many of them have not, but if, if some of them have, it's, t- it's typically under $5 million and often a lot less than that. It could be under $2 million in revenue. So they don't really have a market presence uh, but they do believe, to your point, that their product is a shiny object. And oftentimes they believe it because their investor, who's given them the money, uh, gives it to them under the pretense that, hey, we believe in what you've got. You know? And yet there really hasn't been what I call a market scope uh, to determine you know, which companies in the market really will see value in what you're bringing in. Uh, if it's not a got to have, and you have to create the perception, uh, understanding a way to, to build out a storyline is critical. What the status quo typically looks like though, is, uh, sellers coming in to your point, uh, they incorrectly start making calls to people they know, uh, or they start looking at leads that are coming through their inbound and they're incorrectly putting those opportunities into their CRM systems when in fact, they're not really qualified opportunities. They're not real, you know, they're Memorex, you know? So the status quo typically looks like uh, opportunities sitting in a customer relationship management system uh, that are not truly qualified. So if they're not truly qualified, you can't do the next two steps. I mean, you know, the premise really, to your point about, you know, complex insight, those are terms that I've used. In order 
to understand the complex insight, you have to understand why people want to buy. Why does, what's the customer's buying process? Why do they want to get what you've got? What, what's their comfort level? Uh, and when you do it well, then you've found real opportunities. And then the next steps of, you know, driving those opportunities with the right steps to help get you to a point where you're shortening your sales cycles and, you know, uh, you've got deals in the CRM that you have actual qualified and quantitative steps to go from, hey, we have a real deal. Here's what we're going to do uh, to move the process along so that we can win the business in a forecasted timeline. I mean, the point of putting any deal into a CRM system is to actually forecast it in a timeline. And that helps a company look at what their revenue potential is. So if that's incorrect, everybody really loses. The investor loses because they think the CRM's full of real deals. And the CEO of the company loses because they're hoping it's real too. But the status quo is often uh, 80, 90% of those deals are not real. So you end up in a, a reactive mode oftentimes in these companies where the sellers feel like they don't have the support to really get real deals, uh, you know, because they haven't done that step one, which is to create the perception that you've got something that stakeholders really need. Yeah, you know, that's really very interesting. And everything you're saying is what I have been seeing from a very objective exterior point of view, right? Not really being able to correctly articulate it like you have, right? But, you know, it's very interesting that you say that the investors give them this hope because they're funding them based on this, you know, shiny object, right? Let's just call it shiny object for lack of better words. But I also know that investors, well, at least the, the venture capitalists and private equity funds that companies that we work with, um, they're really interested in um, perception as well, thought leadership, right? They invest a lot into not just the technology, but the CEO, right? Who's going to be the thought leader. And I think a lot of these tech companies that get funded, they get thrown into this world where they realize probably not priority what you're talking about, but they need some sort of perception in the market and they don't really understand this. And so they revert back to what they do know, which is the technology product. Correct. Yeah. I mean, you're an interesting CRO in the sense that you back it up all the way, almost to earlier than marketing, you know, into the public opinion realm before. And you're saying that there is no market scope. Well, I mean, look, I think a lot of companies don't uh, invest in a market scope. Uh, A market scope is usually pretty expensive if you really hire the research companies that know how to do it correctly. And it's not a guarantee for success, but it'll give you data points that will enable you to go out and uh, test the market um, more efficiently. And I, I, and unfortunately, a lot of these companies to, again, to your point, uh, they're run by, people who get anointed to be CEOs primarily because they developed the product. And then the investor, whether it's venture capital money or private equity money, they're 
investing in a programmer who developed a product and they want that person to commercialize it and operationalize it and bring it into the market, which is really a business acumen skill set. And most of these programmer <clears throat> product subject expert type people who get anointed into these CEO roles, they're lacking the communication skills that are necessary and the business acumen that's necessary to understand process as opposed to just product. And so they, they take a very knee-jerk approach oftentimes from what I've seen in, in my you know, 30 years of being in the industry. It's a knee-jerk approach. Uh, <clears throat> they hire sellers. They, they expect those people to just get out there and make it happen. They haven't done proper setup with uh, the right messaging to entice stakeholders to truly want to spend time and understand what they've got. Uh, obviously, it helps if, the, if your product offering is truly a got to have. I mean, one disruptor in the market, in my mind, years ago was Amazon Web Services. When they came up with, with their cloud offering, it truly was a disruptor. And that's the reason why they are a, a zillion dollar business within Amazon. You know, but a lot of companies don't have that. They're not, it's not like the bell goes off for a, for a buyer and they say, wow, this is just unbelievable. We, we got to get this. So you have to then create a storyline that builds perception that your nice to have solution is going to really make an impact for this organization. And if you can't do that, which starts with your marketing strategy person, uh, and really, there's a lot of marketing uh, skill set that goes into that. You need somebody like me to kind of cr create some guidance and some oversight to make sure that what gets put together from a messaging perspective makes sense, because a, a person with more of a selling background should be able to understand whether the impact is there for the buyer, more so even than the marketing person who's writing it up because they haven't been customer facing in their lifetime. You want the person who's been customer facing to collaborate with the marketing people and, and, and really kind of guide that effort so that there's some, you know, insight and uh, a, a sense of, I think this will really work or not. And if you get it right, then you're, 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 you're going into a market that, uh, hopefully will allow you to create m much more easy revenue. And if you do a market scope uh, in particular, that's going to help you with your messaging too. Yeah, that really is the blueprint for rapid sales, rapid, rapid revenue. And, you know, I know there's a percentage of um, companies and products that investors just lose out on, right? Or they get to their liquidity events much later. Right. And this whole perception uh, proposition is the main thing that investors look for. So it seems it would behoove these companies to back up their process uh, to process instead of product. Product is product is really at the very end of the cycle. Right. Yeah, I think. Right. I mean, I don't want to mitigate. Uh, the the value and having something that the market needs. If you don't have a product, well, if you don't then, have that, it's not going to work. If right? You don't have that, yeah. it won't work. But 
correct. Uh, you know, if the investors recognized that, you know, within their portfolios, maybe they don't need all of their companies to hit the home run, but they could hit more home runs uh, and get to faster liquidity events. I fully agree. If they, if their companies went about building out the right strategies based on the right messaging to the right stakeholders, and then from there they'd be able to mentor and, and coach, you know, hopefully in, in a correct way, the sellers so that what they're putting into their CRM systems are actually real. Um, and I think another you know, important point is, you know, you've got, you know, two elements going on that a lot of companies focus on, uh, which are important, but they're not the, the steps that I would focus on first. I mean, a lot of, a lot of these tech companies today want to build out playbooks and they want, they want to use uh, so software tools to enable their sellers to uh, get higher performance. Uh, I wouldn't do the playbook until you've truly mastered an understanding of who's buying from you and why and gone into the market and gotten more than a couple of wins. Uh, you want to get at least at least a, a half a dozen to a dozen wins. And then you've got more data points to build out a copious uh, playbook. Uh, and you have more data points to figure out, you know, what the steps should be and how to shorten your sales cycles. And that would then feed into a better game plan to help sellers, uh, you know, find, cultivate and win business. The other piece is, well, the second bit was the it was the playbook, and then these these tools. You know, the the sales tools are not going to enhance performance. They're just going to help sellers get get their uh, get off get their message out to more people in a shorter period of time. They're going to automate a lot of the manual process of doing business development, but that does not ensure performance. Performance is going to happen when sellers know how to find and to cultivate and to win business correctly. And that's part of that complex insight that, that you talked about that I've, you know, used uh, over the years. Yeah. And, you know, I have a question for you on this playbook. Everything you're saying is very logical. How can you create a playbook without all of what you mentioned? That seems it's, to be very hard to do. Is it just a guessing game? Yeah, I think it's difficult. I mean, you know, you want to create, ideally, you know, have an understanding of who your ideal customer is, but I don't know how you do that uh, unless you have, you know, six to 12 wins in a market where you can then go back and, and evaluate what steps you actually took and, and what worked and what didn't work. If you're building out a playbook from the inception with maybe one or two wins in the marketplace, you haven't really defined your market yet. So to put the playbook together is, you know, you're, you're taking a tactical approach as opposed to a very strategic approach. And um, again, you know, I think that's a problem that a lot of companies have. You put these pieces in place and you think you're putting process in place, but in reality, you're, 
you're kind of messing with the correct process by inserting elements like a playbook or, or other attributes um, that uh, may trip people up because you haven't really defined your market well enough yet. You need to get those wins. You need to dip in and test and, and uh, you can't put the cart before the horse, you know? Yeah, that makes total sense. And so what happens to these tech companies that don't do it this way? What is the, yeah. what is the ugly? You know, you're yeah, telling so me the, the good, the bad, a, what's the ugly? Yeah. Well, it's a great question. I mean, uh, the equation of funding to operating is, uh, is, is kind of an interesting one uh, in, in terms of case studies. Uh, what's a bit nebulous is some of these companies can operate uh, for relatively longer periods of time than you would expect a company that's not generating enough revenue because they've gotten an infusion of cash right. from their investor. Uh, and if the investor is still making money off of a specific, uh, investment fund that might have multiple companies in it, uh, they, they might not, uh, create a dire situation for that particular company that's not generating, uh, or, and, or increasing annual recurring revenue, uh, straight away. They might let that company kind of percolate and uh, carry on for uh, an artificially uh, inflated period of time. But at some point, those companies have to start producing. If they don't, the ugly would be that, you know, it, it just dissipates and, and they go away. Yeah, we've seen or, this all too some, often. Or, or, or sometimes you might be able as an investor to sell the technology still, uh, even if the company uh, has not been performing at a level that you'd expect, but you're still generating some logos, meaning you're still bringing in some new companies to, to use the technology. You might use that uh, to somehow create some kind of event and sell the technology off if you're the investor. But at the end of the day, the ugly is really to the employees of the, of the companies because they're not going to have longevity. That is the ugly because then they have to go out and find another job. They're going right? to get fired and they're going to be looking for new jobs. And this, this happens a lot. It's a, it's, cow, it's a cowboy industry, unfortunately, because of that. That's a really interesting soundbite. It's a cowboy industry that creates a lot of ill will in the terms of public opinion. Yeah. Uh, well, look, you know, it's one of those industries where if you hitch, if you hitch the right train, uh, you, you're going to, you're going to do quite well. I mean, uh, if you're a customer facing person and you hitch the right train with a company that may actually have a gotta have solution, or they have leadership in place that infuses, uh, all of the right elements to support their organizations and set people up for success, then, you know, everything goes smoothly, but that's a very small percent. So, you know, and that's the percent of companies that you hear about, you know, that's what gets talked about is the winners, but 
there are a lot of losers in the industry. And um, uh, I guess the only positive side is there's uh, always another company popping up because these investors look at the tech industry as a great segment in terms of where to put their money. So there's always a lot more companies coming around the corner. So there's always opportunity being created for, you know, worker B level people. Um, whether they're sellers or they've got different uh, roles, um, there's always going to be opportunity. But a lot of these opportunities are short-lived, and that's sad, and it could be changed if process was put in place correctly. Yeah, you know, you're, I- you're exactly right. It could be changed. And this is what I've been seeing. I mean, I've interviewed a lot of disruptors. We work with a lot of disruptors. And one thing that I have noticed is that in the age of data, There is an ability to create algorithms and processes that take luck out of the equation and create systematic, um, again, processes to allow companies to be successful, right? And this is another avenue of this. And this is something you've been seeing over 20, 30 years, putting this together. Who are the early adopters of this, this type of you know, disruption of really focusing on the perception first. Yeah. I mean, I, I think um, one of the companies that did a really good job of creating perception uh, and they did follow it up with, with products that worked, but they were very meticulous about uh, how they, how they went to market back in the nineties when they were a hot flying company. It was a company I worked for, which was Oracle, you know, Oracle uh, back in the early days when, you know, enterprise software was kind of coming on the horizon. uh, They were very clever and they were buttoned down. I mean, I, you know, I learned uh, a lot of good sales acumen uh, being a sales guy at Oracle. I remember working for someone who said to me, said, Jeff, you know, the three questions you always have to ask yourself is, you know, why, why is this person interested? You know, why would they want to buy from us? Why would they be interested in it firstly, but why would they buy from us? And why would they want to get it from us now? And if you really go through that iteration as a starting point, you can create interest, but they also did a really smart job of, uh, creating very credible perception in the market. Um, They had really smart marketing people. You know, they, I mean, this was early years. So the game was a bit different. You know, nowadays you're looking at lead generation through two mechanisms, either inbound or, you know, uh, account-based outbound uh, selling and outbound marketing. Uh, And, I think we've just gotten a little bit confused in a, a lot of these companies as to what comes comes first. I wouldn't focus on building out a, a, an inbound website program at a company until I've already done the steps that I talked about early in this chat. You know, which is creating that perception with the right messaging. Just do that. Do the right messaging to the stakeholders first. Uh, start trying to do some outbound into the marketplace. And once you've built that up a little bit, then start focusing on the inbound. Um, you know, get down the, the CRM process, 
and the site, the cycles that it's taking to go from finding to winning deals and start then incorporating those data points into building out uh, a smarter website, you know, with uh, a program that's going to help also bring uh, potential inbound leads too. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, you're talking about, when you talk about Oracle, you're talking about similar visionaries that really understand that why us, why now Mm -hmm. process in the very beginning. Do you, do you think that, so, so those are the early adopters and that's definitely a great example. What about the guys that are just reticent to change, right? Like, I don't know if you have an example of that, but what is the persona of that type of um, these late adopters or too late well, adopters? <laughs> I think, I think, you know, innately the tech industry, <clears throat> when you look at a lot of these, a lot of these funded companies, uh, most of them are trying to be disruptors. Uh, you know, most of them got money because they've got something that is part of what's perceived to be a new wave, you know? So they're not thinking of themselves as late adopters or uh, late to the game. But I think inadvertently they become that because they, they do not set themselves up for success. And so when failure creeps in and you go through a number of years where you're not generating enough revenue uh, and you need a turnaround situation to occur, you're, you're playing catch up, uh, you know, you're behind the eight ball and that makes everybody more nervous, more fearful, more scared, and it doesn't create a winning culture environment. Yeah, that's really very true. Just as an aside, um, the companies that you work with, do they come to you when they're in that particular, like um, they're behind the eight ball? They, you know, yeah, or do they I mean, come to you before they have six to 12 wins or do they come to you after they have six to 12 wins? What's, yeah, yeah. Who do you typically work uh, with? Well, it's a little bit of all, all of the above. Uh, uh, I've worked with companies that, um, haven't been in the market long enough to truly be behind the eight ball, but they recognize that they've got to do something different. Uh, and so, you know, they're early on, um, not quite a turnaround yet, but, uh, something's got to give and you got to, you got to help figure out how to improve that go to market. Uh, and then, I've worked with companies that just simply want to build a new uh, offering and bring it into the market. So they want to figure out how they're going to commercialize that new offering. And then of course, to your point, yes, uh, uh, there are companies that have been there for a little while uh, and they need a turnaround change management uh, prescription. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, this just reminds me, um, in my career of crisis management and um, helping companies turn around perceptions that have gone awry, um, I have found myself sometimes having to work with legislators and politicians and government officials when things have gone gone badly, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember being uh, in the state legislator of 
legislator um, or the capital of Florida. And I was talking with some state senators and I'll never forget this. They said, you know, tech companies, you know, especially when you have disruptive technology that are going to change things like Uber. And, you know, there was a lot of um, <laughs> human emotion and reaction around Uber in the early days. Right. And the st two state senators been there a long time said, you know, KJ, tech companies are notoriously bad about communicating why their technology is important. By the time it gets on our radar, um, they only want to talk about the product, which we don't understand, right? And it generally gets rejected, right? Um, and they said, if they really had a communicator to help them communicate, nine times out of 10, they would get a lot more acceptance and it would never get to the point of um, such violent human emotion and reaction that it ends up in legislation, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's an interesting point. I mean, Uber, again, you know, you look at what they did in the market, they transformed it uh, in ways that people started to realize they, they need that, right? You get somebody that shows up at your door, your doorstep, a driver, uh, within seconds of, you know, uh, putting in your, your parameters from where you are to where you need to go. And they've got the GPS. And so unlike a yellow cab, if you're living in Manhattan where they don't have the GPS and you got to go find them, uh, this cut down the timeline and you could make it happen fast. But you're talking about another issue, which is uh, even as a tremendous disruptor in the market, uh, they had process issues around, you know, how they were legally bound uh, in the marketplace. So, you know, that's a separate uh, is issue. It's still a process issue, but uh, legislation. Uh, but it was still a perception issue, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To your point, to your point, definitely. Yeah. 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 Okay. So tell me about Jeff Hoffman, because you've mentioned turnaround quite a bit and you haven't just stumbled upon this particular <coughs> insight and algorithm. I, I think you've been a turnaround consultant um, that really gave you a lot of, again, insight into this, but how did you get to this particular point where you can see things so differently? I think for me, it was just, I got into the industry as a salesperson uh, I sold enterprise software for, you know, companies, uh, ultimately, initially these were perpetual software licenses. And now the industry is all subscription based. It's all SaaS based, uh, in terms of how you go to market and deliver the software and sell it. But when I got into the industry and I worked for big and small companies, I just started to recognize that all of these companies are trying to find and win deals fast. Uh, so they're all kind of in change mode. They've all got unrealistic expectations. And so you either build an immunity to that pressure and you start to acknowledge it and operate within it, 
or you leave the industry. And I just started to recognize that I've got to figure out these products that I'm selling quickly. Uh, and I've got to figure out how I'm going to bring in real deals fast. And then when I got into management and ran sales at three different fintech software companies, uh, they were all in change mode. You know, uh, two of them were based in Europe. Uh, one of those companies was looking for an exit and they needed to build out North America quickly so that they could achieve that goal of selling the company. Uh, the other one was, was a turnaround scenario where they had only a very small amount of uh, revenue being generated in North America. Uh, they wanted to get that sorted out because they were being acquired by, a, by a, an investor firm. So they had to figure out uh, what, what's going wrong here and how do we fix it. And, you know, I was also at a, a big company in between those two that uh, was a turnaround scenario where they wanted me to really figure out how to make salespeople better. And I guess through all of this, uh, I started to analyze uh, different skills or, or, or qualities or, or, or uh, uh, characteristics that would help create the impact that these companies needed. And much of that is turning around failed situations, but some of it is just increasing market share. And, you know, some of the key components is you've got to simplify complexity. Uh, you have to know where to look. Uh, you need to know where the problems exist, both on building strategy and, uh, and then on executing it. You have to have an innate appreciation for where are the drains and how to unclog those drains. Uh, but when, when you understand that conceptually, you can codify these processes, which is ultimately what, what I tried to accomplish over the years so that I could help infuse uh, more dynamic approaches to uh, you know, finding, cultivating, and winning deals, which you know, all, all these companies need to make money. And, and the more they make, the happier they are. That's true. You know, that's music to my ears when you say codify, because uh, it's very technology based. I mean, when you look at the root mm -hmm. definition of technology, it's a codified body of knowledge that can be applied, right? Yeah. We, we often think of it as hardware and software and so forth, but still you're taking uh, this change mode turnaround thing. You're simplifying the complexity, codified it, and you made it into a process that is technology based. Yeah, that's badass. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're <laughs> welcome. So what do you do outside of uh, creating rapid revenues? Do you have any crazy passions? We have this like awesome Cannondale bike behind you, but uh, what are your crazy passions? Yeah, I mean, I, I like to exercise. I like to eat. Uh, I took up cooking uh, during COVID. Um, I think I'm a pretty good cook, actually. What do you cook? What it like? I love that you exercise I, I, and love to eat because I do both. And what do you oh, cook? You so, you know, for me, it's like kind of similar to the way I approach what I do. I thought about the principles of cooking. It's boiling, sauteing and baking. And I want to eat protein. So I'm eating chicken, pork, steak, salmon, 
shrimp. Uh, and I just decide how I'm going to cook it. You know, I got it. I have a cast iron skillet, which I highly recommend. It's a game changer because of the way it, it, it cooks meat, right? It, it is like an inversion. You put a piece of chicken or a steak uh, or, or a beautiful pork chop in a cast iron uh, skillet and you saute, you're, you're, you're cooking from the inside, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And you just transfer it right into the oven. You shorten the timeline on the cooking. It's easy to cook. You don't have a lot of different steps. So I like to use the cast iron skillet to cook up chicken and pork. And then for vegetables, I'm usually sauteing them a lot. Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll add in a starch, whether it's a pasta or maybe a protein pasta, like a lentil pasta or chickpea pasta. And I'll boil water to, you know, do that. Uh, lots of different vegetables, greens, carrots, onions, peppers, love peppers, love jalapeno peppers, uh, love fresh garlic. Uh, you saute the, the vegetables. I like doing that. And then, you know, you're going to bake salmon. You're going to, you're going to, um, you're ultimately baking the, the meats once you move the cast iron into the oven. So that, I mean, from an exercise standpoint, I love tennis. I mean, I played tennis growing up. Uh, I, I was playing tennis tournaments, you know, played varsity tennis in college and high school. And then uh, this past summer, I really got back into it. And uh, I mean, I just love playing tennis. I think it's uh, singles, you know, I like to hit you know, go out from a workout exercise point of view. I think it's a fantastic workout. Uh, cycling is definitely of an interest, but in Manhattan, you got to be really careful. Yeah. Um, it sits there a lot because um, it's a nice bike. I it's mean, a beautiful bike. Yeah, yeah. it's a nice bike. I, I need to ride it more. Yeah. So tennis is better. Swimming. Swimming is great too. Oh, I love yeah. swimming. Love swimming, love lifting weights and stuff, but love swimming too. Yeah. What's your favorite dish to cook? so far you know i would say favorite is a good bone-in pork chop in the cast iron skillet uh you know perhaps with some rice uh and vegetables yeah that sounds delicious sounds delicious and you mentioned baking have you really gotten into baking it's so scientific I'm not baking desserts, but I mean, uh, <laughs> I think the main thing I'm baking is like a piece of salmon. I put it in the toaster oven and I bake it. Yeah. Well, you know, I started to watch the Great British Baking Show during COVID, uh, right? I don't know if you've ever seen it. I think I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. It's so baking is so, uh, again, scientific and it's like, it's almost like you have to know chemistry and physics and all that. I I'm convinced that I can make anything now from watching that show. I know it's completely a lie. <laughs> what, do, what do you like to make? I don't bake, which is the problem. Uh, but you know, when I watch that show long enough, I, I'm like, yeah, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> do, you, do you cook? Do you cook? I do cook. I cook a lot. What do you like to cook? Mm, gosh, what do I like to cook? I like to cook a lot of game, uh, mm. duck, oh, pheasant, oh, yeah. uh, venison. Wow. I make kick-ass venison tacos. Wow. Um, bison burgers. Um, of course, you know, I live by the water, so we have a lot of seafood. I've nice. gotten really good at seafood. Yeah. Um, What's your favorite? Oh, gosh. You know, it could be um, trout. It could be sea bass. It could be snapper. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You name it. 
shrimp. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. I love shrimp. Yeah. And I do agree with you on cast iron skillets. I agree with you on that. That's always been a Southern staple growing up. Yeah. Um, I got a new fandangled air fryer. uh, Oh, nice. Oh, that's nice. I do think that they're really awesome. They make uh, really good Cornish hens. Oh, nice, nice. Chicken in them, right? Yeah. But I don't find my game does so well in the Mm -hmm. air fryer. Game meat Mm. needs like a little slower cooking. Interesting. Yeah. 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 So, Jeff, tell everybody where they can find you. Uh, Best place would be my email, which is just Jeff at Jeff Hoffman cro.com uh my mobile number you know i still pick up the mobile phone uh 917-319-1359 and what about linkedin and then i have a linkedin profile uh what is my linkedin profile i i can't remember look the, up jeff hoffman guys <laughs> yeah just Je- jeff hoffman cro and it should pop up i know most of our listeners go through linkedin but yeah. You're very accessible. Jeff at jeffhoffmancro.com and definitely giving out your phone number. Um, I think that's yeah. great. Okay. Gives people an ability to talk to you right away. Thank you. Thank you so much. I love and, the cat woman in the background. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Let's give a plug to um, Jim Warren. Yep. Awesome artist. Yeah, he's a great artist. Thank you for listening to the Disruption Interruption podcast, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Because we live in a highly litigious society, with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal, healthcare, or financial advice, or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal situation or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links do not create an agency-client relationship between Joto PR and the user.